Hey, it's Gory Corey. I'm currently working on a new horror anthology called Welcome Week with Screenager Productions, the minds behind Satan's Servant. We're making a film about the horrors of college, and we're bringing together college-age film students from all over the world to work on it. We're currently fundraising on Indiegogo and would really appreciate your support. Whether it's sharing or donating, anything helps. Thank you so much, and if you'd like to learn more, you can find us on Indiegogo at Welcome Week, or you can visit my blog, GoryCory.com. Thanks! Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. I'm Lindsay. I'm Mike. And I'm Carmelita. We're here to talk about The Devil's Advocate, starring Al Pacino, Keanu Reeves, Charlize Theron, Jeffrey Jones, Judith Ivey, Connie Nielsen, Tamara Tooney, Ruben Santiago Hudson, and Craig T. Nelson. Directed by Taylor Hackford, released in 1997 on a $57 million budget, grossed $153 million at the box office. Certified cult classic, 25 years old. I cannot believe The Devil's Advocate is 25 years old. We'll get into all of that. But first off, welcome Carmelita and Mike back to Filmstrip. Thank you both for being here on this kind of mega cast that we've got going on with all five of us tonight. Mike, start with you. Tell folks about the fine work you're doing out there. Yeah, you can uh, find me, as always, uh, as the co-host of the Action for Everyone podcast, along with filmmaker Liam O'Donnell and uh, the great immortal Vice Fictus. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much I've, I've stepped down a bunch of my other podcasting just because I haven't had time. But we come out every Sunday, so you can always find me there. Absolutely. And Carmelita, once again, welcome back to the show. You were on recently with the uh, Crimes of the Future review with me. Tell folks about all your uh, illustrious podcast guesting duties. Yeah, it's so good to be back on Filmstrip, so thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm here and there and everywhere. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's always something on the schedule. Um, I've been fortunate to guest on a variety of podcasts here before. Uh, oh, my goodness. Film Feast, Cobwebs, Schlockenau, Film Alchemist. Uh, cult movies podcast and there's others but yeah folks can follow me on twitter and you'll always get the latest announcement absolutely all that linked in the show description we'll talk about those as we get to the end but i have to say how do we get to the devil's advocate here in the middle of the summer well first off it's 25 <laughs> years old and when that hit me several months ago i was like holy cow i cannot believe that i need to rewatch that and then a twitter conversation erupted between me and carmelita and mike and it, it turned into this we must do this thing and then i was like well we just got to have the whole gang on for this so i want to go around the horn and sort of get everybody's memories of when your first time seeing this was all that stuff Carmelita let's start with you on that yeah so I I saw this when it first came out I think in the movie theater if it wasn't in the theater then it must have been a rental but I, I feel like none, nothing was spoiled I saw this fresh uh and and I I mean I've always loved this movie and it's one that I enjoy re-watching and I re-watch semi-regularly every few years 
and it's always a joy. I just have such a good time with it. When I first saw this, I was already a fan of Keanu. I was already a fan of Al Pacino. Uh, the little bit that I had seen of Charlize Theron at that point, I enjoyed her work. So, you know, it's a great cast. It's just a fun movie. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I saw this. <clears throat> I actually saw it a couple of times opening weekend, um, but I, I definitely saw it opening night. Uh, and uh, it, uh, you know, at this point, Keanu had already sort of staked his claim as my favorite actor at that time. And so I was all over it. Um, I was also really fascinated to see it because it's the movie that he did instead of doing speed Two, the horrendous abomination that is that movie. So I, uh, so I was really curious to see what about this, uh, you know, made sense to him instead of doing the, the easy paycheck money speed Two. And I think anybody that's seen both movies can very easily understand why he picked this one. So yeah, I, I go all the way back to the start with this movie. I even read the book, uh, afterwards for those who don't know, this is actually based on a novel. I read the novel. I remember very little about it after 25 years, but I did read the novel. So yeah. And then I watched this probably every couple of years and, and have ever since. Absolutely. Lindsay, what about you? So I swear I had seen this movie in the way, way back machine, right when it came out. And then I started watching it and I realized, I don't think I've ever seen this movie, <laughs> but I do recall vividly seeing the video case at our local blockbuster and wanting to rent it on many occasions. And I guess I just assumed that I had, but I'm, I'm almost positive this was my first time ever seeing it. Which is crazy because it is right oh. up my alley. It's exactly what I like. And yeah, so this was kind of a first. Yeah, you texted me that right last night, actually. We were both we realized we were both watching it simultaneously yeah, and at, at the same moment. Same time. That was <laughs> I really know. bizarre. Un unplanned, but that worked mm -hmm. out. Ron, what about you? If I remember correctly, this was a rented it at the local video store and watch it in the dorm room in college movie for me in uh at the the turn of the millennium the millennium i remember this being kind of a big deal i knew people in college who had like the poster up in their dorm rooms they weren't pre-law or anything but they probably should have been because that seems like the most appropriate uh, uh replacement for the pulp fiction poster for those kind of guys <laughs> I, I I like you, Carmelita. Mike, I saw this in theaters when it came out. I knew it was coming. Uh, at this point, I had discovered the grand website that used to be the Internet Movie Database, and so I was aware. And it it hit all of my buttons. I I was in the post Pacino phase, or I guess third phase Pacino, whatever we want to call it, post Hua, whatever. I said the Bronze Age Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> not the Golden Age, not the Silver Age, but the Bronze Age. Right. I, I'd go back and discovered the, the golden stuff at that point, too. And so I was down for this because I was a huge fan of Heat, as, as well documented on, on this podcast and other ones. So I was down to see that. And I thought it's almost stunt casting. You know, first off, an attorney that's Satan. OK, the joke writes itself. And then Al Pacino is the devil. Well, of course. I mean, it totally makes sense. And the Keanu Reeves for me was a different thing because I I'll tell you my Keanu Reeves story right now. When I first heard Speed was coming out and everybody was just raving about it. I was like, the dude from Bill and Ted, really? And then I went and saw it and I was like, oh, shut up. This is awesome. So I, I was a fan. I was on board. 
And uh, I, when Speed 2 came around, I was like, oh, why did he pass on it? And then I watched that movie in the theater and realized why. And so I'm glad to know that he made a wiser choice to do this. And so I was there. I went and saw this. And I probably with a group of friends. Um, and I just have always remembered it. I've owned it in multiple formats. Um, I did dig my VHS out. Uh, sadly, my VHS player does no longer work. So I wasn't able to play it on that. But I did make sure I still had it. And then I uh, still have the DVD and then you know digitally as well. So it's one that I haven't watched in a few years. But it is one that when it would surface on cable or come around on something, I would always kind of stop and see where is it? Because there's just so many scenes in this movie. And... I remember watching it back in the day and thinking like, gosh, this, this seems like as long as it is. And it's, you know, two hours and 20 minutes long. It could even have been longer. And I didn't realize it was a book until many years later. And I've never been able to run down a copy of the book. And I know you can't remember it, Mike, but I'm really impressed that you actually read it. And so if, if anything comes to you as we're talking about this, I'd love to know what the differences are uh, in it and, and where it strays. Cause I understand it went through quite a bit of writing and lots of different people attached to this before they finally got to it. But I'll tell you all right now, one of the names that keeps me coming back to this for years is the director because Taylor Hackford directed one of my all time eighties guilty pleasures. Anybody want to take a guess at what I'm talking about? Nobody knows. I'm going to tell you right now. It's everybody's all American with Dennis Quaid. <laughs> I will watch the I hell out of that movie. Guessed. Unironically, all day because uh, Gavin Gray, the ghost, is the greatest LSU football legend that never existed, much like most of LSU football until 2019. So uh, I, I was about all of that. And so I, but I've, I've seen a lot of his movies through the years Officer and Gentleman, Against All Odds, just several things. And so when I found out he was doing this, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm down. You know, he's, he's not anybody I ever put in director jail. And so I wanted to watch this and, uh, I, again, have just come back to it so many times because there's just so much to dig into. And years later, I found out that, like they tried to turn it into a TV series. And for whatever reason, that never happened. And I thought, gosh, if there's any movie that, that could have been one, I mean, it almost builds itself for three or four seasons. Like this would have been a hella FX kind of thing while The Shield was out and, and stuff like that. But they never got around to it for whatever reason. But no, it, this is a big one for me, too. I, I, I'm curious though, to get into it and look at it through the film strip lens and finally give it the, you know, the old once over and see what really stands out. What's what makes this thing last? Because not only was it a huge success, because, you know, uh, they don't put 50 million dollar adult dramas on the screen anymore. We've all bemoaned that at one time or another. Um, but the fact that this thing tripled that budget and made money, I mean, it was successful and has had a lasting effect. And I'm curious to see what each of you think, maybe why it lasted as long as it has. Uh, Mike, I think we have to, for for posterity's sake, because we've had you on as our uh, official cinematic legal expert before with the Double Jeopardy review and other things. <laughs> we'll go ahead and let you off the hook, though, as the lawyering in this movie is mostly arbitrary. Yeah, and it's it's really kind of tangent. There are some things that might come up, but it's it's really so tangentially related to the plot. It's really just the vehicle that allows the plot to go forward. Uh, and and honestly, it's not as bad as I mean, they don't fundamentally misunderstand a legal concept and then name their entire movie after it. So you know, I mean, we're already doing better than the last time. So. Um, <laughs> Quite true, quite true. Well, I think before we go any further, Ron, we've tasked you as the senior head writer here of Films with, with to summarize <laughs> the Devil's Advocate. So, please, sir, take before we get, uh, before we get started with that, Jay. How dare you besmirch the great name of the 2004 through about 2007 LSU Tigers with none other than 
Al Davis' favorite, Jamarcus Russell. <laughs> Jamarcus Russell. Lane Kiffin's least favorite human. So, <laughs> And that's saying something because yeah. it's Lane Kiffin. Okay, but this is <laughs> the sports true. podcast. This is a movie podcast. So let me get started with the plot summary for this. Kevin Lomax is the best damn lawyer in Gainesville, Florida. He's never lost a case, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to win, even if that means harshly cross-examining a teenager accusing a teacher of molestation to the point where she's a total pariah. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen, ruining a child's life and celebrating in true white trash fashion with tequila shots and biting his wife's ass on the dance floor. <laughs> Shortly after making Heather Matarazzo break down in tears in front of the creepiest actor willing to play a child molester, which is great work if you can get it, uh, Kevin gets a job offer he can't refuse. He's going to New York, the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps, the city on a hill, to assist in jury selection for a high-profile case involving the law firm of one John Milton. He takes the job and managed to get an uncredited Delroy Lindo off on a charge of animal cruelty by tying the slaughter of goats in a Brooklyn basement to religious freedom, which I believe was based on a real case, just not one involving Neo from the Matrix. <laughs> that willingness to do anything to get ahead, to solve a, to, uh, solve a case, cements Kevin's new life as the high-priced big city lawyer working in a gorgeous building, living in the apartment from Rosemary's Baby, and having to watch his boss get blowies under a table at the Flamingo Bar while fantasizing about a young Connie Nielsen. <laughs> Meanwhile, while trapped in Sid Rosemary's baby apartment without any friends other than her husband's co-workers' wives, his wife Marianne, played by Charlize Theron, starts to slowly go insane. She hallucinates babies playing with entrails, she sees weird demon hands under the naked bodies of her only friends, and she becomes increasingly unhinged, probably because of the coven of elderly Satanists living next door. <laughs> when real estate developer Alex Cullen is accused of murdering his wife, stepson, and maid, there's only one high-priced law firm for him to turn to, and it's the very law firm that helped him after that whole Indian burial ground debacle before he changed his name and moved to the big city. <laughs> he turns to Milton, who turns to Kevin, who begins throwing himself into the case with abandon. He neglects his wife and mother, both of whom try to warn Kevin and get him to turn back to shit-kicking in Florida to no avail. Even Milton suggests that Kevin get his wife sorted out, but he refuses to give up his opportunity to keep that perfect record intact. And he gives Milton a lame excuse about possibly resenting Charlize Theron for him for wanting him to impregnate her, which would probably never happen to anyone. Meanwhile, in another subplot, Jeffrey Jones is in trouble with the law. Well, <laughs> Jeffrey Barzoom is in trouble with the law. He's shredding papers at night. He's sweating through a tracksuit. He's making threats when he thinks Kevin is coming after his job. And he's generally being a real Ed Rooney with a cocaine problem about the whole thing. <laughs> Milton isn't worried. He knows that Eddie is about to get mugged and beaten to death by a couple of demon-faced homeless men. The same Justice Department flack investigating Eddie tries to reach out to Kevin about his corrupt boss, but he only succeeds in getting himself hit by a car and killed. Really, it's his fault for jaywalking, but, you know, what are you going to do? It's New York. Everybody jaywalks. Pretty funny coincidence how everyone Milton gets crossed with ends up dead. Meanwhile, despite the death of a co-worker, Kevin has to work closely with Cullen's secretary, Melissa Black, to give her boss an alibi, despite Kevin knowing it's complete codswallop. Kevin sells his soul to the devil and allows the fake alibi to be made, getting coach off on a murder rap that he clearly committed, and losing another piece of himself in the process. Of course, when he goes home, he finds out his wife is sitting naked in the local Catholic church, telling some crazy story about having sex with Milton while Milton was in the court with Kevin. Needless to say, Marianne heads to the rubber room with a quickness. She sees Kevin's assistant Pam as a demon, because that's a thing with her that she keeps doing. So she smashes a mirror in Pam's face, locks everyone out of the room, and cuts her throat while Kevin watches helplessly. 
as, he, as if he didn't have enough going on, what with his wife cutting her throat and all, his clearly Pentecostal mother reveals to Kevin that his father was a waiter at a hotel restaurant in New York in 1966 named, all the unlikely things, John Milton. I can't believe there's two of them. And they're both short, swarthy Italian men. Cue the big confrontation. Kevin storms the penthouse to confront Milton, unloading multiple bullets into him. Turns out you can't shoot the devil unless you're in the comic book preacher. Because Milton announces to Kevin that, yes, he's his father. Yes, he's Satan. And, oh, yeah, that Connie Nielsen you've been lusting after, that's your half-sister. But it's cool. Go ahead and bang her. In fact, she's ovulating, so you better make it count. Kevin's vanity, that undefeated streak, was his downfall in the end. And, as it turns out, Kevin and his sister are supposed to create the Antichrist in a true omen-type situation. Kevin seems to agree and be cool with this, because it's Connie Nielsen and all. But then he gets the last laugh on his father, puts the gun to his head, and blows his brains out, Fight Club style. Milton freaks out, going full Satan, burning Christabella, that's Connie Nielsen's name, alive and transmorphing into his true self. A little bit like Kevin, but about half a foot shorter, and also with wings, because, you know, he's the devil, and the devil's an angel. Smash cut, hard as hell, to Kevin standing in the bathroom during the recess and the Gettys trial from the beginning of the movie. He wipes his face off, marches back into court, announces he can't defend his shitbag client anymore, and he doesn't give a damn if he gets disbarred over it. <coughs> Kevin's reporter pal from earlier, whose name doesn't really matter, promises to blow the whole story up huge, and of course, with Marianne's encouragement, Kevin agrees. The reporter guy turns into Al Pacino, who offers up an unspoken hua, spikes the camera, and announces for the second time in the movie that vanity is my favorite sin. As credits roll. <laughs> Well done, well Lovely. done, yeah, excellent, uh, very well done. Uh, and the Rolling Stones take it home. <laughs> your mean, best yet, Ron. That's yeah, that that one's right up there, man. So that's up there with the Streets of Fire. Uh, <laughs> summary right there. So, uh, wow, where where the hell to start? <laughs> I mean, there's so much to go. I guess we got to start where where it begins with that opening case. And what I have dubbed in my own memories as the complete legal badgering of Heather Matarazzo, um, who I've seen in so many things. And she even made an appearance in the the last Scream movie that they made again, which was kind of fun because she had a, a small role in that series back in the day. Uh, but I, I distinctly remember this. And what I remember about it was the scumbag client jerking off under the table while she's describing the horrible things he did to her. And I'm sitting there looking around the room going, bro, you are not in a small room. Like there's a lot of people in there. What the hell are you doing? But it sets the whole tone, right? Like from the beginning. And then you watch Keanu Reeves after he comes out of the bathroom, launch into her with, uh, I mean, I, I, this is going to sound like I'm a terrible person and I just am going to be for a while. It, it was a pretty brilliant move. Like the way he, he unraveled her in, as, as a, uh, a witness. That's a horrible thing he did, but as movie lawyering goes, I was like, okay, I, I get it. This, that's how this guy gets this reputation. I feel like Mike really wants to say something here. He's got that look on his face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I just was, I was listening. No, you know, it's, it's not bad. I mean, this is, like I said, this is one of those things that's not that bad. Uh, the only thing that really bugs me about this one is the whole 
supposition that he's a defense attorney that's never lost a case because that 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 doesn't as a defense attorney you lose that's what you do you lose you don't win i'll win but you don't you actually lose a whole lot right like like the best defense attorneys in the world win like 10% 10% of the time. So this idea that he's tried however many cases, a hundred or whatever, and he's never lost. I'm like, mm, that's it's what 64. I think he said well, that, that, that was his prosecutor record. He, he's 64 and I was a prosecutor. Then he switched sides. And he's never lost again. I was going to ask what's faker Goldberg's streak or Kevin Lomax's in this movie, because <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, yeah, that I was going to ask. I'm glad you brought it up. Mike. I was like, that's not a thing, right? Like defense attorneys aren't that good. Cause if they were, we, we we'd be in some trouble. Like there's, yeah, there's no, it's, it's, but he's it's the a spawn like of a, Satan. <laughs> I mean, right. So, so I, I'm going to ask it now, how much of what his success is, is Kevin Lomax genius, Florida attorney or Satan pulling the strings who claims he doesn't pull strings, but as we realize does. Well, no, I don't, I don't know that he does. I think the movie's pretty ambiguous about how, how many strings he actually pulls. He's very much up front that all he does is give people the, the choice and, uh, and, and they do it. So on my take, I think it's Kevin. It's just maybe Kevin's got a little extra mojo in him because of who daddy is. But uh, yeah. There we go. All right. I think Kevin's extra mojo comes from those snakeskin boots he's wearing. <laughs> those are alligators, I think, man. They oh, gotta gators, be. Yeah. I think those are gator boots. But I yeah. know, but it would have been so perfect if they had been snakeskin boots. Mm-hmm. I looked very closely at them too because there were a lot of there were a lot of tongue in cheek, you know, lines and costuming and lighting and <laughs> like, hey guys, we're making a movie about demons. Look at this red <laughs> light at the end of the hall. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, those have to be snakeskin boots, but they never mention it. And then they did a close up and it looked very alligatory. I just went with that because he's from Gainesville, Florida. It's yeah. I mean, it's the Everglades, it's the Gators, it's that whole George they have culture. snakes in the Everglades. They do. They have some pretty bad ones. You're right. So, could have been. Yeah, but what I love is, that you, and you're right about the costume because his costuming in particular, and Charlie's Throne probably goes through the most you know change, but his changes a good bit from down home Southern, like got a good deal at J.C. Penney's you know outfits to like Brooks Brothers tailored action you know by the end he's got some some sweet threads there that he's bleeding through at the end yeah, that, that, that first suit that first suit I'm like oh that jacket goes with lots of pants I have that suit yeah. I understand <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a working Mix person too right yeah I, yeah, I do got to say, though, as, as far as lawyer, like lawyer tropes in movies go, though, like the, the way it's always portrayed, at least in my memory of, of movies, is that the defense attorneys are the ones that have all the money. The prosecutors don't have any money. But Kevin Lomax is like, like his wife's a bail bond call person on the side, too. And like, like they're just sort of barely getting by. And I'm like, OK, well, I mean, I guess in northern Florida, that's what that would go as. But that was that it's, went against type is what I'm trying to say. It's worse than bail bonds. She does car repossessions. Mm-hmm. Right, so she works for what what became Ally Bank ultimately. She works with uh, <laughs> with uh, Harry Dean Stanton repossessing cars. I assume. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, and I got the impression that he still made more money as a defense attorney in small town Florida because there was more work doing that than there was um, prosecuting. 
Yeah, I think he even says that at some point, right? He flipped the other the other side I think of it. So yeah. But I mean, he drives a pretty sweet classic muscle car. So I mean, I, I was about the, the old Cutlass. That was pretty slick. So, they looked comfortable, right? So, but you get a lot out of him in the, in this scene. And again, the most despicable client ever. And how is he going to get him out of it? And he does. And it's. I don't know, but I, I, I never paid much attention to that opening scene in the bathroom where the reporter's sort of egging him on, you know, and all that. And we know now that, you know, that's Milton in disguise, right? Uh, or the devil, whatever we want to call him. And I, I I never really put all that together again until, you know, after I'd seen the movie, of course. But I, I, I watched it real closely this time to see, like, are they dropping any clues, any hints at all? And they really don't. Like, it's, it's a pretty tight little side there that it just looks like, no, he just comes up with this idea and grabs that ring and goes back in there and, you know, un, unleashes holy hell on poor Heather Matarazzo. And uh, I mean, I'm going to say I, this, though. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is maybe this is my misunderstanding because I am not in the legal profession. I mean, he has to provide an adequate defense, right? Yeah, legally. <laughs> legally, he has to provide an adequate defense. So, right. yeah, he went at her hard. And, yeah, maybe question taking that client in the first place. But once he's on the case, like that's like that's the job. And so that's always, I think, the interesting thing around professional ethics mm-hmm. versus like your personal ethics or morality, mm-hmm. which is something that comes up a lot in this film, which I always think is real interesting. Like you signed on to do the job and ethically you have to provide this person with the best defense possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you see him jerking off next to you in the <laughs> in the courtroom like this is, I mean, it's a bad, you're in a bad situation. You're in a bad way. I'm sure that's a common battle with like defense attorney, like the amount of cognitive dissonance that you have to be able to hold (laughs) in yourself doing that, you know, in that profession. Crazy. I can't imagine. How often do you think clients are openly masturbating in court, Lindsay. I don't know. I don't know. Mike, York you're actually in court from time to time. Has that ever happened to you in your career? <laughs> I, I've never was I've he... never seen that. I've seen some wild shit, but I've never seen that. So, was he know. masturbating, though? I thought he was just miming what he was doing. There, the right yeah. hand goes into the trousers. Yes, did not both hands that. are engaged. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Carmelita. Both hands are engaged. Okay. So. Well, it's not in the I same missed activity. that part. That makes <laughs> yeah. it way worse yeah <laughs> it's still gross uh, either way the, the thing though and i noticed this this time and i want to see just go around the room and see if y'all caught this or not or if i'm reading too much into it the way keanu reacts to him is obviously like are you kidding me but also like again like I, it looks almost like <laughs> you're doing this again like that he's seen him do this before and like you're talking about Carmelita, he's trying to provide him an adequate defense is like stop making it hard you know, Literally. in so many ways. <laughs> oh, gosh, I did not mean to say it that way. But I mean, but am I reading too much into it? That like this is not like he knows. Like it, it's not this great reveal. Like oh gosh, Gettys is guilty. Like he knows, right? He's just doing his job. Come on, man! You just busted before the sidebar. We need some time here. <laughs> Don't you have a refractory period? <laughs> Oh no! Wow, that went places <laughs> I did not expect. So. 
leave it to Ron to take us to places we're not prepared for. <laughs> you, just re- you just redefine terrible special places for us, Ron. That's what this <laughs> this thing is. So if you think yeah. that was bad, you should see the underside of that table. Oh, oh gosh! No, really though, really, really do, do y'all do y'all agree with me? Like Keanu knows, and this isn't the first time something like that's happened. Or or do you think I'm wrong? And like, no, no, he, like this is this is the big reveal that he, that oh gosh, this guy is actually a creep. I think Keanu felt well. I think he believed sincerely when he took him on as a client that he was innocent. And then as the process went on, he had an idea that maybe he wasn't innocent. But you know what? Not going to ask questions. That's his job is just to keep him out of prison. And then when he saw him doing that, it was like, well, now I can't pretend that I don't know anymore. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with Lindsay there. I feel like there was a lot of I'm not paying attention to this uh, thing you're doing creepily because I have to defend you and pretend like you're not a horrible monster, even though I kind of think you're a horrible monster just based off of how you look. Ron going hard on poor Chris Bauer in this episode. I know, right? Man? <laughs> Good after. character actor, Chris Bauer. But yeah. It's not his fault. He's supposed to be a creep. He's not accidentally a creep like Jeffrey Jones. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Eddie Bazoon later. We, yeah, we huh. will. Yeah. Mike Carvalho, what do y'all think? Kevin, no, does he not know? I. Yeah, I think I think I always read it as maybe over the course of the trial, working with this guy, coaching this guy, he's probably had an idea that like maybe there's maybe he has a feeling there's things this guy isn't telling him. Like maybe he's slowly, but I think that's the moment of realization. Like, oh, there's no question. This mm. guy can't even. This guy can't even pretend. He can't even hold it together. In the courthouse during the trial, like the level of off the rails would be a little bit of a shock. Like that <laughs> would it would be it would hit you hard. Like, whoa, this guy can't even keep his hands to himself in front of the judge and the bailiff and <laughs> the jury. That, I mean, that's next level. Yeah. Blech. Then he splashed some water on his face and he was good to go. <laughs> <laughs> ready to win his case because that's maybe what he that, does he uh, wins maybe that spawned the whole uh, tequila celebration later maybe he's trying to drink some memories away oh yeah we're, we're, we'll get to tequila Fight some memories Mike, away. Yeah. yeah Mike you were weighing in on that yeah no I, I I mean here's the thing as a defense attorney there's you never want to ask a question you don't want to know the answer to so the reality is most defense attorneys really try not to ask their clients too many questions for a couple reasons. One, you don't want to know Two, you can't knowingly put a client on the stand and have them lie. And so if they tell you, yes, I did it. And then they get up on the stand and say, no, I didn't do it. You actually have to recuse yourself and call for a mistrial and stuff like that. So most of the time as a defense attorney, you don't actually ask your client. You don't want to know what your client's side of the story is. That's not really important. What you're trying to do is punch holes in the state's side of the story. So there's definitely, I think, a part, you know, realistically, he probably knows, but he doesn't have the confirmation because he's never asked the questions to get the confirmation until he sees that in trial. And then there's the confirmation that he has so uh, studiously avoided asking for right up until that point. 
Right. I got a question though. Can can you get disbarred for walking out of a trial like that? Well, like, wouldn't he? I mean, he would get called into chambers, right, and explain like, "Judge, he was jerking off in front of me. I didn't know that. I can't do this anymore." Like, you wouldn't get in trouble for that, would you? Well, you you get. I mean, all hell would come down on you. You you probably wouldn't get disbarred, but you also wouldn't do it that way you wouldn't walk into the courtroom in front of the jury in front of everybody make a grand gesture and why like that's not how it'd be done you you and the prosecutor and the judge would meet in chambers you'd explain the situation to the prosecutor and judge say something happened that i no longer ethically feel like i can represent this client um you know and it is entirely possible the judge may not let you off the case uh the, the judge has to let you off in the middle of a trial you better have a real good reason. And, and I don't think that just that is going to be enough. So it's, it's a bit of a weird, you know, again, this stuff doesn't bother me in this movie because it's all just there to establish who Kevin Mm -hmm. is and and get us to, but, but yeah, no, it wouldn't happen like that. I mean, it can happen. Things can happen during trial where you're like, I can't represent this client anymore, but uh, you, you gotta, you gotta have a good reason and you gotta get permission from the judge. Yeah, good point. And, and like you say, it does establish the characters. And this one thing this movie does a really good job of, it, particularly in the first 15 minutes of it, is you get a real good sense of who Kevin is, who Marianne is, who their circle is, and sort of what his relationship is with her and with his mother. And before we get to mom, we've got to talk about the tequila celebration in the bar. Uh, <laughs> maybe not a good idea to do that with members of the press. I don't care how friendly you are with them, but whatever. Do your do your life in, in Florida with the faux band in the background which i got a real kick out of listening to that i was like that sounds like all the bands i tried to play in in bars in college too like just these <laughs> sweaty songs of people dancing drink jam band at the bar yes yeah it's kind of that like it had this whole hooting the blowfish meets zydeco thing going on i don't know but it was it, it took me back to a different place in time um but this movie is, if anything is is incredibly sweaty and yeah. Mm-hmm. To, sorry to interrupt you here, Jay, but to me, that uh, weird Zydeco band was the least realistic portion of the movie because at that time in Gainesville, like, shouldn't it have been like less than Jake playing in the background or hot water music? Probably. Or against yeah. Me that- or one of the. Any one of those beardy Gainesville punk bands against uh, me. That or, or actually. Now, realistically, it should have been Sister Hazel because that's who's from there. Like, it should have been them, and they probably weren't hard enough. Because I've seen Sister Hazel in concert, and they're incredibly safe and very nice, and they're actually really nice guys. I've met them, but yeah, they 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 probably weren't hard enough, so they they went with the the lesser lesser version of that. But the whole point of this is, and I'll just pass this along from my uh, career expertise: job interviews in bars when you're drunk are a bad idea. <laughs> don't, don't do them, uh, no matter how um, disarming the. Job who comes up to you and most assuredly do not say yeah you being black that's kind of a funny thing like that's a good joke like that is not a good way to endear yourself to someone who might employ you somewhere in the future but uh, I, I i get a kick out of that scene every time because the thing that sobers him up is when he opens up the envelope and we never even really see how much they offer him for it but i'm like well, it must have been something to turn his head because they're on the next flight out of Gainesville after that it was enough. Whatever the, however many zeros were in that figure, it was enough. Well, and they're ambitious too. Like, you know, he was drunk and he wasn't, I think he wasn't sure if this guy was on the level, but he's ambitious. Mm-hmm. His wife shares his ambitions. 
So, I mean, who knows how much it would have taken. It might not have taken very much at all. Plus, everything else is all expenses paid. Right. 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 Which it does bring us to that that big contrast where we get to see Mom, the great Judith Ivy, uh, two time Tony winner, we should say, uh, playing a fundamentalist, faux Pentecostal uh, type church action here, and just the way that that I'm like watching that, and again, I have relatives that are in that church, and and so I've seen that kind of thing. I've never went to one personally, but I sort of know how it works, and I'm watching this, and I'm like. Well, you could not have gone more opposite of your mother to marry somebody than to grab Charlie Theron, who's out there doing work while she's inside singing about Romans 16, 18 says, you know, and 16, all this kind of 19 stuff. 19 says. Yeah, they, thank you, Lindsay. Yeah, 16, 19. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, anybody pick up that like there might be a little tension between mom and Marianne that maybe they don't get along that well? well and maybe that wasn't a little bit her first no, choice. For sure. For sure. <laughs> Let's see. Hair down your butt or a. Super crispy perm, a long <laughs> denim skirt, or jorts and a tank top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but I I do love this character though. I love the mom character because she is the one thing that is always she's pretty well always the same in the movie. Like she is centered around the fact that she is involved with that church that that is her centering point in life, and she never drops that at any point and i kind of like that because in, in a lesser movie like eventually she would you know like taken off the mask of it maybe when she reveals the big truth later or whatever but you realize that like no that this is really who she is and kevin grew up in that but then as he talks about later he got you know paroled for time served or whatever so i i don't know i i loved her character and i love the interaction between them because she's she realizes she wants to influence her son but she really can't anymore right She's influenced him as far as she can. I did. I liked her character a lot too, Jay. I found her to be very comforting. Every time she was in a scene, I felt like I could exhale for a minute. Like everything's Mm going to be fine. (laughs) She has a very calm voice. Yeah. Yeah. There is that little bit of pressure, right? Yeah. She did do Satan. Because mom is so churchy. Cause she's so devout and so rigid. Like I can, it's like she, yeah, she's got that nurturing motherly thing, but there's also the bite of that, like the guilt guilting you for working on Sunday, you know, guilting you for your lifestyle. Like there's, there's a little, there's a little, there's an edge to it that she's I very judgy. See. Yeah. yeah could Just cause she's difficult. nice. Doesn't mean she's not like, actively judging right. you at every moment which is which is kind of part of the performance too i think i, I give yeah. a lot to the actors for knowing how to portray that without being without being so fundamentally shrewd that we just immediately hate her you know what i mean as, a, as an audience right. like you're like oh i i mean i don't necessarily agree maybe but i get it right yeah, yeah. and that's a tough balance to walk yeah she walked it Definitely. well so, so we're going to New York to pick a jury and all I could just chuckle to myself and say, I forgot that Arnold T pants Esquire from Fletch was the <laughs> attorney that we were going to assist here uh, with picking a jury for, for this. And if you don't know what I'm talking about folks, just go look it up. Uh, it's, it's worth a laugh. But uh, I, I, I love like the way that 
Kevin interacts here and where he lays out information, you know, like the way he has figured out these two people that he's telling the guy, like, you got to kick these people off the jury because I mean, this guy makes his own clothes and he's really proud of his shoes. And like, he's probably got a gun under his, under his bed. And then that one right there, she's been hurt. She wants on this jury and stuff. And I was like, you know, I mean, like there, that's, that's a neat thing to see in, in movies whenever they're picking juries and stuff. I mean, goodness gracious, they made a whole John Grisham book and movie out of it, um, which more or less works or not. But I, I thought that whole sequence was great. Only one thing though, that I have a qualm with is when they ask him why, I, I hated that Kevin's like, I don't know. I just know. I'm like, no, he should say like the last five minutes is why I just told you why. Like I hate that he sort of unraveled himself there a little bit uh, because this guy is so cocky and for a good reason that I don't know. I felt like that was just weird. Like, why would you like not just own up to the fact that you, you, you know, because you know, you know, you gave him reasons. I think they're dropping. These are some of those early little hints that there's more, to Kevin because there's more to Milton. Like I think I've always read it as they're, they're dropping that little hint that like maybe he's just that good at reading people and he doesn't really know why he's that good. And maybe it's just this innate ability. Maybe there's a reason why he has this innate ability, you know? So I, I've always thought of it that way, kind of playing with like, Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I think that's that's one of the first moments we see or we get that that whiff of the supernatural or the maybe more than a man or there's something more that we're not seeing here. I think that whiff is brimstone. Yes, maybe a little maybe a little charcoal fire in there, too. (laughs) It could be. Uh, I don't know. I I love the scene though because it's we don't get to see the the what happens. Like that's the one thing about this movie for a courtroom movie or whatever. Like there's there's very little of it actually happens in the court. There's a lot in the court, but there's a lot that's not too. There's a lot of people walking out of court, and you sort of get told what happens. And I in a in some ways I'm like, oh, that would have been kind of neat to see. But I'm like, wait a minute, this movie's long enough anyway. We don't need that. And what's more fun is to watch him walk out. And I look at the timer and I'm like, this movie's 20 minutes going. Where the hell's Al Pacino? And then there he is. And I'm like, you may only be 5'3", sir, but you stand like a skyscraper over this scenery. The way he blows in with that coat and the way he's got his eyebrows all up. His, I'm like, man, that is some classic 90s Pacino if I ever saw it. I the love close his up, The close-up of Pacino's shoes Yes. And you see you see Kevin like smirk a little bit at like the three inch heels that he's got on his shoes or however high you know, tall. Which they by were. the way, talk about like vanity of actor, you know, and, and just letting people do that. That's one of those secrets. We don't shoot the Apple box Tom's on. You know, we don't do that. And Pacino was like, Yeah, whatever. Like, at this point, here, I, don't think he I, always, I always thought about that being another one of these little like hints you know the you know when we do have illustrations of satan the devil when he's Mm -hmm. in that like the cloven hoof form yeah yeah did you think he had hooves that's that's what i thought it's like yeah like a symbolic his his symbolic hooves yeah and what you thought was just italian leg hair was actually goat legs (laughs) (laughs) same same 
But no, Mikey does. Like he when he comes into the screen, it's like this complete force enters. It's the music. It's everything, right? Well, yeah, and you get it perfectly because you get you know uh, where does he sleep? Who said he sleeps? Where does he fuck? Everywhere. Like you just can't. <laughs> like like I mean, it just he just comes in and you know and and already from minute one. You know exactly what Al Pacino you're getting in this movie, right? Like from minute one. And so it it works because you're just already starting to wait for it to build to, you know, what we're going to get in the climax, which is peak uh, Al Pacino chewing scenery, you know? And, yeah. and so, but it is, it's such a great introduction. The one thing, and you know, we talk about this a little more as the movie goes on. The one thing it does is it also sort of immediately establishes as much as I love him, how kind of outclassed Keanu is in this movie a little bit in terms of, of going head to head with one of the greats of all time. Uh, you know, he holds his own uh, throughout most of the movie, but I certainly think he's better in the scenes without Pacino than he is in the ones where he's trying to go head to head with Pacino. Agreed. Yeah. I, I would disagree with you there, but that's a real hard energy for somebody like Keanu Reeves to try to match. Cause that's, oh, that's yeah. not his MO. Well, and I'm glad he doesn't really even try, right? I mean, I think that would have even been worse as if he had tried to match that. It works a little better that he is a contrast to it. It's just, uh, you know, we've talked a bit about the accent. The accent's not doing him any favors as far as that goes either um, because he's he can't hold it. And, and it's it's really sort of handicapping his ability to let his natural Keanu charm come out the way it would in some of his other movies. He seems to be thinking really hard about how do I keep this accent when I'm saying these lines and not as much focusing on his performance? Yeah, I don't disagree, but it is neat. It is a great introduction to Milton as a character and all these other people. And I call this little section of the movie, the seduction of Kevin Lomax, because that's what's happening. I mean, they're going to show him all of it, right? The view and, you know, you get uh Lehman Heath shows him that, that great view, which about a really cool actor, which I sadly, I confused him with Courtney B Vance for years. And then I was like, Oh no, no, this is a different person, but still a, a character I've seen in a lot of things. And I love him when he walks him in, like, Oh, you can act cool if you want, but my jaw was on the floor when I saw that, you know, and all this stuff, he's just so smooth. Smooth, you know, smooth jazz compared to Keanu over here. And they're showing him all this. And then we meet, we meet Jeffrey Jones, Eddie Barzoon, man. What, what a, what a larger than life uh, person. And we'll just leave aside the horrible person Jeffrey Jones is to just yeah. the character he's playing here is anytime he, I saw him in movies coming up to the eighties and into the nineties, he always is just an explosion on the screen of, of from power, the duck to this, he just has a presence that you cannot deny. And it, it's amazing to watch the guy work. I mean, and that's the cool part about this movie. And I, I give Taylor Hackford a lot of credit for this is knowing how to pepper these guys in around each other, because I'll go back to my favorite guilty pleasure. Everybody's all American. The unsung hero of that movie is not Dennis Quaid. And it's not Jessica Lang either. It's friggin' John Goodman. John Goodman's a huge presence for the like third of that movie that he's in. And he's unbelievable. And he does the same kind of thing that Jeffrey Jones is doing here. In fact, I, I almost wonder if you stuck John Goodman in this role, if it wouldn't work just the same, because there's kind of the Ooh. same sort of physical presence, at least. Right. I, I do that for you. I kind of like that. I mean, I just I love John Goodman. Right. What you're talking about makes me think of like 
his role in Fallen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good choice. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, this is a great part of the film because, yes, the temptation. And this, I don't know about all of you. I'm a big fan of movies that have the devil as a character and like how different actors and how different stories portray the devil and stories like this, where the devil is all about the temptation about you have a choice, but like they're going to pull out all the stops to show you everything you could have. If you just come along, uh, but like and subtly. So yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yes. And so I love this because it's, it's like we meet all of these different characters, his minions that are in the law firm or or married to the partners and just all the little subtle ways that they're they're tempting you with money, status, sex, what have you and then also breaking you down the way you came dressed and like the way your marriage is and just all the little subtle ways that they're they're showing you the goods of everything you could have and then also trying to like sever your ties to whatever was grounding you before you got there it's really cool one of the cool things that happens as part of that is as they get Kevin on and I love the whole you know, are we negotiating we're always negotiating you know line or whatever and I, I, when he's working and doing all this stuff and they they're cutting back to Marianne trying to decorate the apartment and they use the paint roller as the screen wipe and I'm like you know in a lesser movie I would think like that's some hacky bullshit but in this one I'm like <laughs> no I kind of like it I kind of like the way it goes and I love the end of it where Tim Rattini's just like they're your walls Marianne do what you want and that totally judgmental like but I'm going to totally make fun of you behind your back if you paint them the wrong color away like it's so snobby but also kind of nice like, it's, I, I love all of that too and Charlize is giving us so much with just her face like she doesn't say anything during all that it's just like green See foam green, see foam yellow, and she's just totally frustrated by the whole experience. Charlize gives so much in this movie; like she mm. gives a lot in this movie. It's fantastic. I do like the look. I love green, just you know, in a cardigan, not on my wall line. <laughs> yeah, it's too institutional. One. So uh, I was almost positive that wall was going to end up red. Right, I one, really you know, felt right. It. I didn't notice and until this time love. that wall changes colors all yep. the damn time. Like, what you, and what I realized is like Marianne repaints that apartment probably a dozen times during her She's unraveling. Bored. She's worked yep. her entire life. She was never meant to be a houseplant wife. And that is exactly what she is. And these new friends are trying to like get her into it. And she's like, I can't, I have to do something. I get it. I get that. Mm-hmm. As Keanu's mother That's might weird. say, you can't turn a hoe into a housewife. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's tough. It's a tough sell. Wow. It is. Well, her first mistake was putting up that yellow wallpaper that made everyone go crazy back in the Victorian times. It only got worse. <laughs> that apartment, though, was like Rosemary's baby vibes, for sure. The oh, second, yeah. The second they walked into it and walked through it, I was like, we're in Rosemary's baby. Like, this shit's yeah. going down. 
you they're can gonna feel have it in there too, right? Like it's, yeah. it's. I, I mean, it's yeah. definitely something that they're drawing on for influence in this. Tony Gilroy is not not a not a bad screenwriter. He's written a lot of incredible stuff, and so he's he clearly is pulling from that. And uh, Jonathan Lemkin too, like both of those guys, they're right out of that school of stuff. I'm a I'm a little surprised they didn't use the Dakota as the exterior of the building just to further, you know, cram that point home. Maybe that would have been too much, like on the nose at that point. Maybe. So, I don't we've know. got we've got mixing things. So you got Rosemary to Baby. You got the Omen going on at the same time too, because oh, the yeah. Lomax story is very mm-hmm. Omenish. It's very. You no, know, Jay. Um, there's something too yeah. subtle for the Devil's Advocate to to. <laughs> I mean, did I just say that? Yes, I did. I yeah. Okay. I'm probably going a little too far on that, but no, I I love the 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 contrast with those, and I also love too how we we drop Milton back in there, and we're at the party at the Barzoons, right? And this is when he meets Marianne, and only the devil could look at Charlize Theron in 1997 and go, you know what's wrong with you? Your fucking hair, cut it off, <laughs> you know, and, and for her to listen to him too, and they put her in that. The way list. he does it, though, the way I, he's talking in her ear. I mean, I'm just going to say this, and some people are going to say I'm cr- It's kind of hot. <laughs> it's supposed to it's be seductive, kinda, though, right? It's yeah. kind of hot. Like, and this is, you know, I mean, yeah, this is Hua era Pacino, but it's kind of hot. And, and, and it's the way he says it to her, where it's a dig, but a compliment at the same, like, there's, there's some flattery to it. And when he describes her neck, when he tells her, please do me the favor, pull your hair up, you know, and yes, he's criticizing her hair, the perm and the length and the color. But when he starts talking to her about her neck being no man's land, I mean, come on. Yeah, she's, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if if things got a little heated right then and there. <laughs> That's his whole... It's, like it it's looked like hot. it was about to. <laughs> it yeah. looked like it was about to. Well, that's his whole mo, right? He talks about it later in the movie. He's like, yeah, you know, they don't see me coming until you know they're, they're they see him coming. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you until go. they're trying to walk t- away. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just me, just little old me. You know, yeah, little that's, old him. I mean, that's, but no, you're right. I mean, it, it is a very. It's when you get to see Pacino, like you talked about, Mike, like chewing scenery, but he's doing it in a quiet way, which is in who I era Pacino is, is a rarity to find. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And he does do quite a bit of interesting stuff in this like that. You know, the way you, you do buy it. Um, it's also, I don't know, it is a bit hard because it it is Pacino. So you're already like, why, why is everybody trusting this guy? Like, like it, it, I never (laughs) really particularly found Al Pacino to be that seductive, even in his youth. So I'm kind of (laughs) like, can't we already tell that this, there's something off with this guy. But again, this is such a, an overheated, overboiled movie that anything less than what Pacino's doing in this, I think lessens the movie. I mean, this thing needs to be pitched to 11 and it is pitched to 11. So it, it, yeah. it works. Um, you don't have to be objectively attractive to be seductive, right. especially in New York city. Like he's got the money, he's got the job, he's partnered this massive law firm. Like, He's good. That's all he really needs. He can be five three and get whatever he wants. 
he's 97 Al Pacino. He smells like a human ashtray. Like, <laughs> like there's, there's, there's no way, like, like he's sitting there next to her neck, talking to her and all she's getting, she's not getting turned on. She's getting a whiff of three day old bourbon and like all marks, right. Just, just wafting over her. Lucky so. strike unfiltered. Yeah. So, no, you're right though. You're right. Though. But th- something that, that occurred to me watching it this time is this is borrowing from the party scene at the beginning of fatal attraction where we see glenn close first throw her hooks into michael douglas if you'll go back if you ever watched that and i watched it recently i implore you to go back and watch it and watch where they meet at the party and the way it's shot and kind of the smoky room and the way she just you know sort of hits at him i'm like they're they may not even intentionally be doing it but somebody watched that and was like we just need to do that scene again because there's nothing overtly sexual about that scene except everything about it because it's just completely <laughs> just verhoven to the roof sex you know we're going to do all of that joe esterhaus eat your heart out is what's going on right here because it is it is about to go there and I, I mean i thought it was it was really well done and again it's it just shows you that, and this, I, I'm with you, Carmelita. Like, I love watching movies where the devil's portrayed and just how does the devil work, you know? And like, sometimes it's, it's cartoony and ridiculous. And sometimes it's like, the, I mean, if you, if you believe in, in the biblical story and you believe in that, you, you're like, you know, this is actually pretty relatable to how the devil would operate. Like, it's not, he's not going to blow you over. He's going to subtly kind of work his way in there. And you know, he smells like 40 day year old bourbon and, and an ashtray. You're still going to be like, yeah, I'm going to cut my hair off and and yeah, we'll go for that now. Like you just fall into his, his prey like a vampire almost. Well, and that's the whole thing, right? What does Marianne want throughout this whole movie? Attention from her husband. And she's not getting any attention mm-hmm. from her husband because Keanu Reeves has to go out and lawyer up the world. So when that that's the opening, that's the weakness that um, Milton needs to kind of sleaze his way in there and start putting suggestions into her ear. Well, and we've already met the Connie Nielsen character in passing when he's walking around the law office. She's in there screaming in Italian at somebody on on the phone. And then we see her at the party and they have kind of a little meet semi-cute on the balcony out there. And and it, Pacino drops on him later. He's like, you were looking to, you know, upgrade on Marianne the minute you walked in and you saw her, you know, and like you can tell like there's something there. And I'll, I'll give this movie credit too. And I, I just noticed it this time watching it is they go out of their way to make Connie Nielsen, Christabella look like Marianne, but just turned up just to a different dial. Like they look alike, they dress alike. She's just a little taller, a little different, a little different confidence, but I was sort of blown away by like how similar they, they are. And then Milton gets Marianne to change her hair. So she doesn't look like the person that Lomax married. Mm, that's a subtle point. I thought about that. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that contrast becomes very clear when we get to that one particular sex scene mm-hmm. where like the back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. I, I got to talk about, though, what I think is is some pretty neat stuff. Delroy Lindo, I see you, Delroy, in your uncredited <laughs> role here as Voodoo Man down there. I, I kind of, I was watching this and I'm like, did we just transport into like a episode of law and order all of a sudden because it's shot like it it looks like but it is really kind of cool and it's almost like that's actually kind of a slick argument that he makes in court i I thought it was pretty neat no this is based on on a real kind of a real case it's kind sort of based on a real case uh they 
they at least read the Wikipedia summary of a real case to, to write this scene. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it just, you, again, not to get too deep in the weeds, you wouldn't actually make the argument at the time that Kevin makes it in the movie, but that's fine. I mean, again, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really care, but it, it's just another way that it also helps us establish kind of one that Kevin really is willing. He's got no, for all his like pretend morals, he really doesn't. Uh, but also how from big to small, you know, massive lawyers to little voodoo practicing Delroy Lindo in his apartment, uh, that Milton has his hooks into everything and everyone. Right. And, and he very clearly, he takes care of his people. I mean, he, this is, you know, a person they're doing this as a personal, he's doing this as a favor essentially to Delroy Lindo because Delroy Lindo is a good follower, you know? And so, uh, it's again, another one of those ways where it really does, this movie really does paint the picture very quickly, you know, to the point that mm-hmm. when we do finally get the reveal, if you're at all surprised by the big reveal, uh, you probably haven't been paying that much attention to the movie because it, it really does leave the trail of breadcrumbs all the way there. No, oh, it totally does. But but I love that Milton drops that line after after it's over. It's like, yeah, guy's got eleven million in the bank living in that basement. You believe it? And he's like, really? He's like, yeah. What do you think he's paying us in? You know, chickens or whatever. And it's I don't know. It's just funny. And I was like, but to the point you're making, Mike is like you don't know who out there has got money and power and all that, but Satan would definitely be on their retainer. I think, Oh yeah, I'll I'll make sure that guy's taken care of. Right. You know, it's, that's part of the seduction is that, yeah, you thought you were smart whipping out that, you know, cow's tongue or whatever in court. That's pretty slick, but let me tell you where that's coming from. And I think it it leads to something you've mentioned earlier. Carmelita is like, if we're, if we believe all of it, that he's Satan's son, like that kind of idea, that seductive, argument would come naturally right if we're to believe like lineage and all those kind of things so it's i don't know it's it's an interesting way to read it uh, but it's a fun it's a fun thing to watch delroy linda do that you know because I, I love him and everything and so it, it's fun to see that myriad starting to fall apart as we talked about but then we get the introduction to what i have to say is is certainly a choice to get Craig T. Nelson to play <laughs> this knockoff Donald Trump scumbag <laughs> is really a choice in 1997. I was like, I remember when I saw it, I was like, coach? Like, I, was, I could not believe, like, you know, dad from Poltergeist, like, you had a drinking problem, but come on. Even in Poltergeist 2, you weren't that bad. I, I was blown away by how deliciously evil <laughs> Craig T. Nelson is in this. And what's right is what's neat is to watch him do things throughout there. And I think they even play with it once where they have the Gettys actor like pop in for him and something. You realize that they're the same person over and over again that Kevin keeps you winding up with. But I, man, I love Craig T. Nelson as the Cullen character here. All of it. I, I was blown away by the entire performance in there. I mean, it's, it's a choice, but he's making, but I loved all of them. I liked that they they clearly paralleled his character with the Donald Trump empire in New York City that was at the time, coupled with the line at the party where someone goes, oh, yeah, well, Donald Trump was supposed to be here. And I was like, dude, they could have gotten 
If Donald Trump was an actor, they would have <laughs> offered that role to him and he would have taken it. He was in Home Alone too. This would be a you very know? different movie. It would have been. It yeah, especially been. now. Like it really would have been now. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. but this was then. Different Trump, different era, yeah. different time. Right. But, <laughs> but the fact that they're playing kind of the, the – the, this is the other Trump you don't know about yeah. in New York. The other real estate tycoon or whatever. Like all of the, – they're, they're playing off of that. It gives the audience or it gives me as the audience like a centering point of reference. Like, okay, Donald Trump but scummier. And I know that sounds really weird to say in 2022. But in 1997, <laughs> like that was a different conversation that we were having. It was a different kind of scummy we were talking about. And then you put Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> there to do it that's the other part it's like wow it's like the first time i heard michael j fox curse i'm like marty <laughs> like really like i mean like really re- you know bright lights big cities is, is a revelation if you haven't seen it and really <laughs> laid up that oily tycoon persona though now to be fair to craig t nelson he could have been going for leona helmsley but nice i mean okay fair so <laughs> slightly less terrible but you know but yeah, I really love that choice. Uh, I just feel like um, it's him playing against type a little bit. At least the type that we know him as is this, you know, he's not a scumbag in Poltergeist. He's just, you know, kind of uh, taken advantage of. And, you know, at this point, he was best known for being coach on coach and everyone loved coach. I loved coach. I watched the shit out of that show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was awesome. So, yeah. This is and, what I like about it. I think it. It reminds me, like, in the 90s, we had a lot of those high-profile, like, celebrity cases. Uh. Like, people, someone coming up today who who hears the name O.J. Simpson, like, immediately thinks of that case and has their thoughts about whether or not he was guilty. But prior to the murder of his wife, like, he had been, he was like America's sweetheart, O.J. Simpson. Juice, you know, he was running through the airport in a Hertz commercial. Yeah, yes, yes. So, like, we had some of these high profile things, like the Menendez brothers look like these real sweet, wholesome, you know, maybe spoiled rich boys, but you know, had gunned down their parents. Like, you had these high profile cases where these rich people who looked very clean cut and all American were then people had to confront that image against what they were seeing in the courtroom. And I think his casting plays nicely on that phenomena of the nineties. When we were starting to see all these cases and you had court TV and people got really engrossed in that. Right. Cause we're right there on the cusp of the, after the OJ Simpson trial, that's really when the 24 hour news cycle in our lifetimes began, you know, like people maybe a little bit younger than us, uh, sort of just know that that's life right but i remember when that became a thing and it was on the heels of that matter of fact if i'm not mistaken the notoriety popularity of that or whatever is part of what got this greenlit so fast is that there was an appetite to go watch this and it it spawned things like law and order and and all that kind of stuff you know and it really rocketed them to the front and it's it's a big high profile case though we're going to take a roll on the dice i I love jeffrey jones in the scene he's like really like he's just so like put upon by this like we're gonna let this kid have this you know and it's it's fun to watch kevin sort of realize like what you want me to do what like you you want me to do what you know like he doesn't know what he's supposed to do but as if the guy's not overworked enough 
he's going to just work some more. And what you realize and what I realize now is that this is, we've already got the wedge between him and Marianne, right? So now we're just, we're just going to drive a little further, right? Because what do you do when you want to separate people? You get them and you just make sure there's no way they can ever connect. And it, it opens up a door for a lot of darkness to creep in on, on old Kevin here. And I want to talk about the way Charlize starts to unravel before she completely you know, goes off the, the deep end here at, at, in the third act of the movie. Her slow burn down into insanity is, is I think it's when I realized I was like, man, this, this woman could really do things. And now having seen her in things for decades, like it's, it's no surprise, like how heralded she is in an actor. But I, I was really impressed with, how she physically just transforms in front of us. And all it is, is just, you know, tears in the eyes and just a little more wide open. It's just little subtle stuff, but it, Oh, it's so effective. Well, and she's coming off. I mean, she's nobody at the time this comes out, you know, she's coming off two days in the Valley, uh, which was kind of her big introduction. And then she had done trial and error this year too, which uh, you know, and that was basically it. So, this is a real like statement performance for her in terms of who she is and who she was, you know, going to be in the future here because she is doing a lot of, she's doing a lot of heavy lifting in this movie uh, in terms of, again, I love him to death, but she is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the relationship between her and Keanu in terms yeah. of, of having to uh, convey what, this is doing to her uh, in a way that, you know, and it works for him for the character again, because he's all wrapped up in work and he's all wrapped up in this lifestyle. So the fact that he is a bit detached in that Zen, like Keanu way that he, he is a lot does work in that favor, but that does put a lot of burden on Charlize Theron to mm -hmm. carry the emotional weight. Uh, and she does. Uh, every time I see this movie again, I am, I am constantly reminded of how terrific she is in this thing. Yeah. I mean, she just, the way that she is the one clearly putting in all the effort as a character into their relationship is echoed by, she is definitely putting all of it in as an actor here. And I, I only wonder like, if that's not again, director's choice and let me dial back my, my man and let this strong female character do. And I keep going back to everybody's all American. I promise y'all that there's reasons for it. Jessica Lang is a powerhouse as an actress and Dennis Quaid is a lot of things, but he's not a powerhouse as an actor. And up next to her in some of that movie, like she is blowing him out of the water. And, but that's also what's happening to the two people too. And I'm like, I I've seen you do this before. And even go back to officer and a gentleman, Deborah Winger is acting circles around fucking Richard gear for oh, almost that yeah. entire movie, yeah. you know, and, and you see, you kind of get it right. And I don't, I don't know. It, it takes a skill of a director to be able to get somebody to channel that and get it on screen too, and get it on camera. And I, it, it's just a theme throughout this guy's career. And, and it's never so evident as in this movie though. Cause like you say, Charlize Theron is nobody at this point. And luckily her career was not derailed three years later by reindeer games. So, you know, like she, she was able to recover after that. Thank, thank goodness. But, um, I will, yeah, step, I will step in as the lone reindeer games defender. I really like that movie. 
<laughs> Go back in the archives. You can hear that it's a Christmas uh, special <laughs> way back in the day. Ron and Brian and I did that one. Uh, but uh, our Brian, not Lindsay's Brian, just for the record. Uh, so, <laughs> so that we're clear. But no, Charlize is, is given a heck of a performance. She's, she's slowly unraveling. She's falling apart. And I think nothing says that better than the scene where they just go at each other and just start tearing each other's clothes off. And they just have this incredibly passionate scene, but it's cut in between Kevin fantasizing that it's Christabella, but yeah. And, and Charlize his character, Marianne catches this. And I love her lines. Like you're not here. I don't know where you are, but you are not here. And I'm like, Oh man, this is that just, that went down a road. I, I thought we were just going to get gratuitous sexy for, you know, that's the point in the movie where we need it, but no, we're, we're telling stories with this. Oh, definitely. Well, I, I like that it's, again, this is another, another way in which this film kind of plays with that, the, the supernatural influence and just the reality of like when people are in relationships, sometimes their connection is off or things are hard going through a rough patch. Sometimes even when things are good, people think about other people sometimes have fantasies about people other than their partner. Like that's a very real thing. It doesn't make you evil. It makes you human. But in the context of the issues that they're having and like how, what a, a real vulnerable place she's in. I don't, it's really cool that dynamic, but we, we also know, especially for those of us who have rewatched this a gazillion times that there is, you know, he's been, he's being actively tempted so it's it's kind of a cool way they play with that. But it, I think he's being tempted though by his own desires. That's sure, the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it. It just got introduced to him. It was just like, yeah, there it is. Do with it what you and want. He ran and with then he's it. yeah, he's mm-hmm. running with it, right? Yeah. Well, and it's another example, again, just to sing the praises of Charlize, you know, this is an incredibly vulnerable performance, and it's going to get even more vulnerable. Uh, I mean, she's. She's really got to put it all out there in this movie. Uh, and, and she does, you know, and, and I think the movie doesn't it manages to walk the line without being too terribly. And this is probably a credit to, to Taylor Hackford. It walks the line without being too terribly exploitative, I think, because it does. The stuff is there for shock value. It's certainly not. I mean, there's very little actual titillation in this movie. Almost everything involving any nudity or any sex is compounded with some type of grossness underneath the surface. Um, And so, you know, she, that all runs through her in this. And Mm -hmm. it really does start in this scene before we get, you know, ultimately her, her tragic end. But uh, yeah, it's, she's got to put it again. She's got to do most of the heavy lifting here. Uh, You know, Keanu gets to suck on some toes and, uh, and then she (laughs) has to, you know, has to do the whole, you're not here and, 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 and convey that hurt uh, that, that she, that she feels uh, where he just, you know, has to put Connie Nelson's toes in his mouth. So, you know, it's, well, you know what I'll say, I'll say about that though. <laughs> I give credit to the director and to the actors for going there with that, because that seems like such a weird, thing. but like when you're intimate with people like that's just like, that's just life. Like, right. It's just sort of where you get like, that's more real than any other damn thing you usually see in a movie sex scene. It's certainly more real than Silent Night, Deadly Night five. So, I mean, <laughs> You know, we like we as, as we all know. So, I mean, 
and I think everybody in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about, oddly enough, for once. But I mean, really, like it's it, it is something that's very real about it without being titillating. I think you've, you've hit on a point, Mike. It's like we're not there to be like turned on by this. Right. This is not basic instincts. Right. We're, it's there to just show you like this is what's happening. But watch what's happening behind the scenes. And it's it's a, it, it's when the movie really becomes a horror movie for about 35 minutes. And it gets pretty, pretty horrific. She starts having visions of small children playing with you know ripped out ovaries. And there's this like whole theme where she keeps talking about her sister's pregnant again. She's got seven kids. And I can't get pregnant. She's constantly talking about wanting to have a kid. And of course, Kevin is not about that. And that's like real marital tension stuff going on while she's losing her mind and it's I, the way it manifests is is really really well done like i say culminating with that that kid thing i was like man, i forgot that that was happening in this movie like this this took a real weird turn fast yeah but uh, i will say as someone who does have uh, a child not that much older than the child that's in this movie there's a lot worse things that child could have been playing with let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> I will take your word for it on that one. <laughs> but I will say that this is the first part of the movie where it feels like this is where Keanu, where, where Lomax is starting to make his choice between these two worlds, mm. where he's got to choose between Definitely. do I want the, the highfalutin New York Italian-speaking lawyer or do I want the, the Florida trailer trash with the crispy berm um, kind of... This is the choice he's facing, right? He's, got to, he's choosing between these two fates for himself. And this is where that conflict really starts to show up where he start. It seems like he started to realize, oh, I can't have my wife and my New York. I have to pick one or the other. Right. I mean, and Pacino has had these great scenes too. Like they're riding on the subway to the next game or whatever. And there's that guy that pulls the box cutter on him. And he basically, he starts speaking to me in Spanish. He's like, yeah, come home. Cause you know, your wife is sleeping with your girlfriends with your, your best friend or whatever. You need to go take care of that. Like, he's like, you go and kill those people. It's like, Holy cow, this guy, like, not only does he know this, but he's just sort of setting all these things in motion. And then he turns around, though, and tells, you know, Kevin, like, look, man, you need to drop this. Like, you, you need to let this go. And he gives him, like, a legit choice. And he watches him tell him, he's like, well, if I do it and she gets better, I hate her for it. And it's one of Keanu's best. It's one of the times when the accent kind of works and, like, the whole delivery completely works. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a powerful line. And they just sort of let it hang when he says it in the, in the room, too. Yeah, and I love, I love least, that whole sequence. Yeah. And he's at least self-aware enough to know that about himself. Like, he's just – the hooks are in him at that point. You know, he wants to just see if he can do it. Nose down. And he's going. And I think he just wants to have his cake and eat it, too. Eat his cake and have it, too. Hmm. And he thinks he can. And it feels like to me he's getting a, a professional challenge for like maybe the first time that he feels like this is finally a case worthy of my great yeah. abilities. So I feel like that's kind of blowing him up a little bit. Yeah. Then he's faced with the same ethical dilemma that he was faced with in the first scene is when he's interviewing the secretary that's supposed to be the the great alibi. And I mean, I love how he's prepping her and he just drops like, is he circumcised? And she doesn't know what to say. He's like, well, is he or not? You know, he just keeps going on and on about it. And I'm like, that's actually really smart. Like cross-examination. Like I'm kind of like for TV lawyer again, I'm, I'm sort of digging that, but I love how when he, the look on his face, when she goes like, shove it up your ass. And he's like, 
oh shit like she is lying and i'm gonna put her on the stand but you see make that choice and you're like yeah you you will be mike you said earlier like you can't willingly put somebody up there you know that's gonna perjure and lie and he's like but i can't because i have and i've done it and that's the seduction of the devil right is that just a little bit and see you didn't get caught so see it's okay right and you just you just slowly portray you know I didn't yeah, see I that mean, one that's, coming. That's that's really where we get Kevin. We lose Kevin, right? Like, yeah. like it, 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 you know, and it, it really is a nice transition to what uh, essentially is the third act here. Because at the point he makes that decision, we're off to the races. A- everything with Marianne goes straight to shit very quickly. Everything, you know, everything starts happening very because this is a very methodically paced movie for for as much stuff as happens in it it's also can be a bit slow at times um but kind of once kevin makes that decision we're sort of we're sort of off to the races and off and running because uh, at, at this point he is lost uh he has made his choice whether he realizes it or not he is lost and uh there is no no walking back from this one at least not in any way that's not going to involve you know horrible horrible things Right. And but I, I think I like what you're talking about, how the movie slows down from time to time. I call it letting the movie breathe. Like there's that scene where he's working late and he catches Eddie Barzoon and all of his minions, his own minions, shredding paper to hell, you know, and back. Make sure it doesn't go in the commercial bin. It goes in the personal one and all that. You know, they're no telling what they're clearing out in there. And and you start to see that once Kevin has lost himself, he's in, he's in this whole pile how just how deeply corrupt all of this is like it doesn't look like it on the outside but underneath it's very sweaty it's very raw it's very detached and it's something that that tamar tooney drops as kind of a joke when early on when she's talking to marianne she's like if i want to see lehman i make an appointment but what she realizes is that she's not lying like that you know they never they never have anything to do with each other it's just that they're demon women or whatever and have given over to it um or, or whatever is going on there but I, I i love how this movie breathes from time to time and lets this stuff happen because the lesser one want to chop it up too much so i kind of like that it, it slows down from time to time and lets all this stuff slowly but surely just burn away at, at everything it's it's um well it's it's watching somebody fall they never fall immediately it's always just a little bit of the time and um yeah, I mean it. It unravels completely. But this, I'm like, we we introduced this whole subplot. It's the one thing I'll say is kind of the weakest point of this thing is this whole Justice Department subplot. Like, yeah. I wasn't really sure what that was all about. I'm like, are we trying to make an argument that the Justice Department is the arm of God for some reason? Because I would, I don't know about that. Like, I, I'm not really sure what the statement was there, other than we must pay attention to traffic law. Uh, because the the best part of that is the way that that guy gets taken out with with milton burning his finger in the holy water turning it into you know the ending of gremlins all of a sudden and then the guy just getting smashed by the cab i'm like holy cow man like and they do something too they make pacino's fingers like real dark they give him like a pointy fingernail like they put a little fright nail on him too to do it i was like man we're just hitting it on the head but i love all of that i love the way all of that happens because it's in the same like vein of when he's talking about what i call the ballad of eddie barzoon (laughs) when when jeffrey jones goes for a jog in the park and as a as a former vet guy who jogged in the park a lot i can tell you that's how it feels and you look around sometimes and you see the predator coming behind you because that's immediately what i think of when the shadows come to get him and uh, I, I, it's, it's just so neat, though, because all of it is overcut with Pacino just chewing dialogue. Just, you know, there's God's special creature, Eddie Barzoon. And he just he's 
over the top, but it's awesome to watch because you realize like, holy shit, this is a lot deeper than even we knew. And that's when Kevin starts to realize like, I'm really in it now. I am deep in it now. It's to me watching Pacino, especially in this scene, this particular uh, part of the film is like watching an old boxer. You know, the head movement's not going to be as good as it was. The foot movement's not going to be as crisp. The cardio's not going to be as good. But man, when he, when George Foreman hauls back and he throws that hook and it lands, it's, yeah. you're going to feel it. And this is just like, you know, 44 year old George Foreman just bombing his way with body shots to win a possibly fixed world title. But it, it is something <laughs> to behold because it's like Pacino's like, I don't have my curveball location anymore. But I've got a good change up and I got a hell of a fastball. <laughs> He's Mariano Rivera at the end. All I got is the cutter, and I'm gonna slice you to death with it. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's exactly what that particular scene feels like. Because he's doing every trick. He's bugging his eyes out. He's doing weird things with his hands. And then he really leans into every time he gets to say, Bazoon. <laughs> but but to go back to what I started that with was like the whole Justice Department thing. Like I I don't really know what that was like. This whole subplot of that, what that was supposed to represent for us, it almost seemed like too much. Like one more thing never, to do. We never really find out, do we? Mm-mm. No, we it's, it's rather unresolved. Yeah, yeah. My read has always been this is another opportunity to give Kevin Lomax an out. That's it's exactly like, what yeah. I was going to say. That's his. It's another yeah. choice he's getting to make where he makes the wrong choice. Like the guy tells him all this. They're 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 drug smuggling. They're in with gun runners. They're doing all this corrupt stuff all over the globe. Work with us to to bring them down. Like this is your opportunity to get out and do the right thing. And and he chooses not to. Well, and every time Kevin makes that choice, something really bad happens, right? He, yeah. he When he makes mm-hmm. the choice to put the secretary on the stand and go forward with the trial, that's when Marianne is in church and, and finds out, you know, and, and, and Marianne ends up all cut up in church. And then here, when he makes the choice to turn away from the Justice Department guy, not only does the Justice Department guy die, but our very next scene is Marianne killing herself, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And so it's every time Kevin... Mm-hmm makes that choice, something very bad happens. Uh, something that, that draws him further in by separating the people that, that, that matter to him away from him. So that's, I, I I'm with Carmelita. That's how I've always read it. I've read it as it's, it's, it's a kind of an unnecessary subplot in an already bloated movie, but I do think it works as yet another excuse or another opportunity for Kevin to walk away. And he just never does. Well, Lindsay, I know we were texting about it when it happened. Charlie's at the church. That is like one of the things you'll never forget is how she goes through that whole weeping scene talking about what happened. And Milton was there and all of a sudden it just and then, you know, and then she just stands up and rips off that that uh coverlet and she's you know totally naked she's cut the hell up right and you're like what the hell happened you know and i mean she she's giving this just unreal performance where she realizes she's just completely 
off the the end of, of the rope at that point. But I'll give Keanu credit. Like his reaction to that is really, really good. Like he wraps Agreed. her up and he's legitimately like worried. He's hurt. He doesn't know what yeah. to do. And yeah. but but yeah, Charlize in that scene is that is unbelievably good. That was full on stigmata vibes for me. I know yeah. it's I mean, but like the way that she did it and just that one mm. moment reminded me of that one moment in stigmata when she was going into like the full stigmata um final chapter or whatever uh it was called. That yeah, you bring up a good point, Jay. That might have been my favorite like acting moment for him. I think that's when he was the most authentic. He seemed truly worried. I wonder, I would be interested to know if he had seen her before that happened. Because I feel like a director would have hidden that from him to get the most authentic reaction possible. So I don't know if they would have done it in one take. Probably not. But I feel like that would have that would have added a little bit of a wow factor. That's a good point. And I, I haven't read anything to confirm that either way. I but, haven't either. But, but the reveal of it just for us as the audience is, I mean, yeah. it's a big music hit. All of it. It, it plays at that moment because it's supposed to really shock us to see what has happened. And then the next time you see her, I mean, she's clearly on a lot of drugs. They've just sort of just yeah. completely. Thorazine. She's got that Thorazine yeah, look yeah, about they, her. They shot her up with whatever Dr. Loomis was going to give Michael Myers before he broke out of the sanitarium <laughs> because she is not not on the same level anymore. And then as you talked about, Michael, like every time he makes this choice, something bad happens. And with the scene where she decides to break the mirror and cut her own throat is one of the saddest, like, ends of a character I've ever seen in one of these, like, super over dramas. Like, I, I mean, you know it's coming. And yet when it happens, you're like, I, I can't believe I just watched that. Like is it's really, really something. Every time I watch it, every time I rewatch this, I'm always like, like somebody do something. Like somebody <laughs> call somebody, do something. Can't you see what's about to happen? It, it gets me every time, even though I know it's coming. It's just the heartbreak of that moment. Like you see the train coming and there's just no stopping it. And for a moment, though, they give you a little bit of hope. Like, you think, well, a few times, you think Kevin is going to break through the door. And then after she slices her own throat, you think that maybe she survives because she's still alive. We don't actually see her die. The nurse is in there. She's got a pulse. And you're like, oh, cool. Maybe she'll pull through, like, in Lawless or something. You know, I don't know. People can survive (laughs) cutthroats. But, yeah, no. When he's walking down the hall carrying her suitcase and just that blank look on his face, it's like, oh, wow. And it's buttressed by that your mom has come back into town to visit, right? You know, to sort of another chance for him to get out. She's begging him to come back home, all this stuff. And she starts to tell him this story. And then she tells him the story that like, we already all know the answer to, right? But we have to do the big reveal that like Milton is actually your father. Darth Vader is your father, Kevin. (laughs) Like that's, that's what this is. Yeah, I love I love that the way she tells the story and the way he doesn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Like this is another this is another moment where where Kevin is having to confront some truths that he did not want to know about, doesn't want to accept. 
and but he has to. And and in this case, like I, you know, you get the feeling like he kind of he knows, like as the stories of Bull, like he's already kind of figured it out. But he just doesn't want to confront it. It seems like it's really, really bad timing on mom's part too to drop this on him. Like it is, yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, to her credit, like he comes back out there after all this has gone down with his wife and says, "Finish the story, mom. Like you." Finish it. Tell me what I already know. Like, just go on and, and drop it because she came up here to do that anyway. And she does it again. Judith Ivy, to her credit, is is given a whale of a, a job to just drop all those lines on him at this moment. And you feel you feel for her in a way that, like, maybe if you don't agree with her beliefs, the way, the way she operates and stuff, you really feel for her. And you see, like, this is somebody who was seduced by the dark side. And then made the choice to like, nope, I'm not staying <laughs> and got out. And but now it's it's right back in her face again, you know, so even she is being tormented still to this day on that. Do you and then, did she, she just go back knew? to Florida? She just disappears like yeah. she's gone. Yeah. Like, do you think she knew that Milton was who Milton was when it had like, I think she we have she, that I, inkling. I don't think he back then, like in the sixties or whatever, but when she met him after coming off the elevator, like the look on her face and rewatch, you could tell like she knows, she knows who that is. She remembers everything about it. And that's when she starts to grapple with how do I tell him, Oh my, uh, you found your father or he found you. Cause it kind of reminded me, I don't know if any of you have read or seen good omens. Um, it's like a mini series on Prime. Um, but they have there's the Antichrist is born and there's an angel and a demon kind of watching over the Antichrist right. and his upbringing and trying to make sure that like he has the most and then they end up like getting it wrong. And the real one was just raised by normal people and he's totally normal. <laughs> like human. <laughs> but I was getting a lot of those vibes where it's like maybe she knew that Kevin was potentially, you know, half demonic. And so that's why she went so hard toward the Pentecostal and raising him in such a way. Could have been. Yeah. I I just sort of took it as, I mean, she, she goes up there and she gets seduced on a church trip. So she's already kind of fundamentally religious anyway. And she gets pregnant and to somebody like her in her era, like that would have been just the stigma thing. So her only overcorrection is to go completely in the opposite way. Like, well, fine. I'll raise him as a monk, you know, like that's sort of her own self induced penance for this. But yeah, I mean, it's it's everything we know, right? But it leads to that last bit, and this is where I want to toss it to you, Mike. Is when Al Pacino gets <laughs> in the room and after Kevin shoots him and realizes that's not going to go anywhere, and he just unleashes this torrid for 12 minutes that's like Kevin's life story mixed with Satan's treatise on human beings mixed with Al Pacino on a lot of cocaine. I mean, it, there's a whole hell of a lot happening on the screen. <laughs> He's an absentee landlord. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, like, 
this is one of the things I like about this movie is because you guys all know I'm an action freak. Like that's what my favorite genre of films are. And, and, and you always wait, right. Whether it's, you know, something like blood sport or, or undisputed or whatever action film, you always wait for the last fight, right? That's, that's what you're building towards in an action movie. And mm-hmm. this is as close to an action movie last fight in a drama as you will ever see. I mean, this is exactly what this whole movie's been building towards. And it just unleashes. And it, it whatever problems, every time I watch this movie, I, I have problems. I have criticisms. And every time I get to this end, this climax, they all go out the window. I just don't care anymore, <laughs> yeah. right? Because touch but don't taste taste but don't swallow you know i mean you just you can't you can't the 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 improv and the dialogue and the script all of it here in this is so good and the way pacino plays it is so good uh that i mean it's just it's a treat it's it's one of the best 12 minutes in cinematic history. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think this is one of the greatest movies of all time, but that is one of the best 12 minutes of all time in any movie. I mean, it's, it is a, it is a complete defensive, a thesis happening right here in, in a moment. And we've seen Pacino do that in so many different movies. You see actors do it too, but watching him do this, it's the culmination of all of those times and capped off with like the central things. Like I've been on the ground with my nose in it from the beginning, like totally referenced back to, I got turned into a snake to crawl on the earth. Fine. Then I'm a fan of man. And I'm like hearing him just roll all that out. And you're like, wow. And what, what I catch myself doing every time I watch it, because I know what's happening or I've seen it, but I'm just, I catch myself watching Keanu Reeves in, Again, he realizes I have I can't talk in this moment, but the way his face gives in as the avatar for the audience, like you see how you can get seduced into the argument because everybody will tell you it makes good debate, right? Two thirds of it is having knowledge, but the big one third is being able to sell it in a way that lures people to your side and having a having a presentation that gets people to pay attention is part of the seduction. And of course, Satan would bring out the biggest guns he's got at the end, only to be told by Connie Nielsen that he talks too much, which which was great <laughs> humor at, at the top. So. The humor. That's one thing I do love about this, this final, call it almost a monologue, is for as over the top and as intense and as hard as Pacino goes, there's a lot of really good humor sprinkled in. You know, like, yeah, he, he yells, I'm a fan of man, but then he follows it up with, I'm a humanist, you know, and, and just like the way he varies his tone throughout it or when Keanu is like, uh, you know, Satan and he's like, call me dad. You know, there's yeah. there's some nice breaks in there so that it's not from a structural standpoint. There's some really nice breaks so that it's not too intense. You can take a, a quick breather before he ramps it back up again. Um, and then he I, proceeds to actually call him dad unironically without question <laughs> right why the law why the law dad you know you guys right into that whole bit it like he's been everything. calling him dad for years right like he just falls right into it right yeah no it's it's great and then he's got the whole uh, this is the part where he's you know, like now we now we've just turned into a land i didn't expect we were going to be in it's like look kevin you know we, we got to have a kid here or whatever and only with the she's ovulating i'm like 
<laughs> okay, that, thanks for the very specific reference there, Dad. But sure, I mean, like it's. It, but I had never noticed it until this time that. Like while he's talking and Connie Nelson is over there being seductive, she's laying out like all these black mask candles and shit. I'm yeah. like, it's a fucking Motley Crue video about to happen in the background, y'all. Like, wow, I had never paid attention to that until now. And then Al Pacino mumbles some sort of faux Latin thing for a second when they start getting it on, you know, which is a totally like it's it's a sex scene, though, that is mirroring the one that he had with Marianne earlier. But it's it's completely different. And uh, the, I, I don't know. I just I, I love the way all of that works at that point um because it and we haven't even talked about that sculpture painting thing that he's got going on in the background it's got that whole nightmare on Elm street four shit going on in the back or five going on in the back like well, what the hell like it, it, there's just so much going on on the screen well and that sculpture got them in some trouble they got sued. they got sued yeah Did yeah they really yeah. why yeah that it was too similar to um. a, a sculpture in a cathedral in Washington DC and they, and they, and it, they got sued, but yeah, no, it's beautiful. The way, you know, all these fallen angels or the, you know, these people in torment and it's like writhing. I just, Ooh, it looks like well, it, go, it goes both ways. Like they yeah. look like they're in ultimate pleasure until Kevin shoots himself. And then it all goes to hell literally. And you see like, Oh no, they're in torment. Like those are not winds. Those are flames. They're dancing. in. it's like, yeah. Oh, Oh, when I turn the light on, now it gets dangerous. Somewhere Meatloaf is taking notes for the I would do anything for love, but I won't do that video. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was five years before this, but it and was. I'm sad that I know that, but anyway. So <laughs> but I mean really Maybe they though, take it, notes from Meatloaf. I mean, one could argue. Um so <laughs> but no, it's it's a great moment. But I I, I will give Keanu though the way he smirks when he stands up and says free will right and then he pulls that gun out and pulls the trigger i mean it's like wow like, i it's i i remember being in the theaters going what like i did not see that coming because i thought what well, there's I no way it. out now we're gonna birth the antichrist it's like no not if i shoot myself in the head <laughs> i was like oh i didn't see that coming at all one of the best uses of slow motion yeah mm-hmm. and he still has that smirk falling. on his face Yes, and like his body's falling and you cut to the reaction and you can see the flames and it'll cut back to him. You see the flames behind him and his, as his body slowly falls. It's, oh, it's gorgeous. Also the it. makeup job, the special effects when he does that and you see the actual shot and all of the carnage. It, it's very back it's into wounds. the left. That was good. That yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole like, thing going on there and there's a little bit of like it's early you know cgi again but it still holds up and looks good in, in the mix with the practical that it is i thought it looked good yeah all of that going on but then i, I got questions because this is the part for 25 years this has perplexed me and i need the four of you to fix this for me what the fuck happens at the end of this movie where we flash back to the bathroom and it, is it a dream did it happen and we go back in time? What what happens at we the We go end? back in time. They unravel everything that's been done. So and none of what we've just watched has happened. It's it all could well, it happen. Did. It did happen. Okay. But it's like we're de- this is how I'm taking it. So please feel free to jump in anyone else. But when he when he I, I don't know, killed himself, something broke in Satan, right? Well, 
uh, Satan still needs his Antichrist. And so he just got to figure out how to get it another way. And he still has his two living spawns to do that. And so he just hit the rewind button because it's Satan. And I assume he can do that. But, but can he do that? Because he said earlier that he doesn't do that. And, uh, you know, yes, like you even called that out. Like He doesn't, doesn't do that. He can't, though. Oh, okay. All right. So there's your in. Carmelita, Ron, Mike, tell me what, what happened. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it feels like a very uh, kind of last temptation of Christ kind of moment mm. where, you know, how Christ in, in last temptation has the, the the fantasy of going and having a normal life and, and all that stuff before, you know, we smash cut to him back on the cross. It's that kind of moment for uh, Lomax. He, he has this vision of himself doing whatever it takes to win. And then picturing himself going down this dark, darker and just progressively darker path and losing everything that he holds dear. Um, and then we get to the end and it, and it turns out that um, uh, the Leuven brothers were right. Satan is real and he is working in power. And, <laughs> you know, then he reappears to try a different way to get, you know, get his hooks into Lomax. That theory works for me, too. One of the things that I love about this is you can read it different ways, and it totally works. And, you know, I, I'm also of the mind that it's, it's like it resets. Like, all of that happened in some kind of a reality, and then it resets and let's give it another try because we, we didn't, we didn't start Armageddon. So we better try We better start over. And it's, you know, I mean, there's a precedence for this, right? Like if you think about it's a wonderful life. Mm. Wow. Everything, I didn't think we'd be referencing yeah. that today, but okay. Right. Like <laughs> everything that George Bailey goes through is, feels very real. And once he, kind of comes to this realization and makes this choice, it resets. So it's similar. Also very much reminds me of Donnie Darko. Mm. Again, another yeah. time travel, you make a choice to go with a particular, you make a, a fated choice and then it resets. So there's precedent for it. And I think it's, it is one of those kind of lofty ideas and you can read it a bunch of different ways and that's what I like about it. So, uh, you know, that's just me. Apparently, according to IMDb, you actually can't read it a bunch of different ways because it's <laughs> uh, the IMDb. The IMDb trivia says when we first see Kevin in the bathroom right before he splashes water on his face, you hear a loud boom. And at the end of the movie, there is no boom. And so the boom is actually indicating Kevin entering Milton's hallucination world that he's created so the the sort of it's a wonderful life occurrence at al creek bridge theory yeah. according to imdb i guess is is how it works but that's how i i've always sort of taken it too is that it's like so i don't know if y'all ever watched lucifer great show if you never did uh yeah but but in there people in hell they're trapped in what's called a hell loop they relive the same events over and over again until they learn to deal with their guilt and make different choices and the ones that can make different choices actually have a chance of 
sometime getting out of hell, but nobody ever does make different choices. And so I sort of, that's how I've always sort of looked at it is we don't know how many times Kevin has gone down this road before. Mm. This could be the millionth time, right? Because we're dealing with things that occur in an instant based on if we're assuming Kevin in the bathroom is reality and the breakoff point is when he splashes water on his face. We, I mean, millions, you know, because just right. like God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, so is the devil. So he can see, he sees all these things at once, basically. But the key is Kevin has to choose. Kevin has to choose. And so if you want to take an optimistic approach to it, the idea is, is that every time, no matter what happens, Kevin ultimately chooses to not bring about the Antichrist. And we repeat the cycle again. Um, so, you know, uh, that's how I've always interpreted it. But again, it's not, it's not very clear. And it is definitely kind of a, it does smack a little bit of a, like, let's blow their minds here at the ending. Right. Like, (laughs) and we can't end on a shot of, uh, Keanu Reeves falling over with blood coming out of his head and Al Pacino blowing up. Right. We, we can't, we got to have some different happier ending than that. Oh, can I tell you though? If if they had ended with that, if it turns into hellscape and then we smash cut to uh, sympathy for the devil, I'm sitting there with my jaw on the fucking floor going, wow, we made the choice and we went with it instead of the Matrix Revolutions choice or, <laughs> um, or whatever that we're talking about here, because that's what that feels like. You know, I'm like, oh, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I think all of this is correct. Uh, Carmelita, you've nailed it. It's, it's left open to be, I don't care what the IMDb Tribune says, it's, it's open-ended <laughs> for, for you to be able to figure it out. And I like that about it, but it's always been the thing that's puzzled me. But then, then again, I'm like, well, that's how you get a movie like this to last for 25 years is yeah. you leave people with the hook of like, so, so I mean, this, the, he hooks him a different approach, but it's with the same thing. And it's that line is like vanity is definitely my favorite sin. And it's, it's Kevin's fatal flaw is that ultimately he's Carly Simon song waiting to happen. He is, he is bad. <laughs> and it is, it is, that's where we are. And I, I don't know. I, I like all of that. But I will say that it would have been an incredibly bold choice to jump right to the stones after he shot himself. Like, oh shit. Like, that would be a darker well, path true. to go down. Yeah. yeah. That's the ending I was ready for. So I was surprised when it didn't go that way. But again, oh, this right. Is- this was your first. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't realize it was my first time until I was well into yeah. the movie. I, um, I, I will admit, though, my, my reading of that is totally influenced by the fact that I had seen Seven at that point in my life, so I just assumed everything that started taking dark turns was going to do that shit. Well, and I'm thinking, like, I'm thinking post-Game of Thrones, Lindsay, uh, who is just ready for any character to die at any point in time, right, right. always, now. The, the, the best take I ever saw in Game of Thrones was it's just like Twitter. There's 240 characters and none of them are up to any good. It's, right. it's all going to end in death and cry. <laughs> like, yeah. No matter what. So that's where I thought it was ending. And I was I was thrown for a loop when he ended back up in the bathroom. But oh. rewind button. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time for everybody to give their final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings, and reveal your favorite sins. So what are yours for the devil's advocate? Carmelita, let's start with you. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I think this movie is so much fun to watch. The performances, the whole vibe. I grew up Catholic, so I love this idea of 
the temptation and the sin. I just, I just eat that stuff up. It's just really fun for me to watch. This is a large popcorn for me. It, ha- it does have flaws. There's definitely some things that are a little heavy handed, but it's, it's just so enjoyable and so rewatchable that I don't care. It's just a good time for me. So this is definitely a large popcorn. Uh, you want to know my favorite sin? No, I was joking about that. You don't have to I mean, Because I would tell you, because I definitely have one. Um, Who's your favorite Satan? <laughs> oh, we, I mean, that's a whole, that could be a whole other episode. My favorite yeah, movie, right. Satan. Yeah, that really, that, yeah, we could have a whole sidebar that's a on big favorite, question. Just favorite movie, Satan. I have a list. Yeah, we, right. we'll have to come back to that. We'll have to Until resurrect film, film strip <laughs> sessions just for that. But all right, Mike, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to echo everything Carmelita said. This movie, I, I could absolutely pick apart a lot of stuff in this movie, but I just don't want to. I just, the stuff that's good is so damn good, and it's impossible, I think, to to leave this movie because that climax is so good. It's impossible to leave this movie not just feeling kind of uh, jazzed while gross, right? Like you feel a little gross, but you also feel a little jazzed. And uh, <laughs> so for me, it's it's definitely a large popcorn with a big old glass of Blanton's and a pack of Lucky Strikes. And I'm just sitting there <laughs> munching, smoking and sipping away and having a great old time. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, what about you? Oh, I I really, as a, an unknowing first time watcher, I did. I liked I liked the movie a lot. I thought I liked it to begin with. Turns out I still liked it also for the first, not first time, second time, whatever it was. Maybe you're in a um, loop, Lindsay. Maybe you're making choices. I feel like it. Time. I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> Who's to say? Um, but yeah, I too. So this is definitely one of my favorite genres of films, this whole like religious thriller type of thing. I I do have some some issues that I took with it that I mean really just more of the like campier costuming things that really didn't take me out of it that much but and nothing that I'm going to get into now cuz I'm with you guys like it was just overall a really enjoyable enjoyable movie I though I'm going to I'm going to stray a little bit from the path and give it a medium popcorn but like a really good medium popcorn All right Ron nice. I'm going to go with the uh, the bulk of the consensus here and go with a large popcorn. This movie is just like, to me, this movie is just like a ride. Like you, you check in, they lock the little thing down over your lap, and you're just hanging on for dear life until the end. It's going slower. It's going faster. You're going up and down. There's, there's just all this stuff happening. It's One of the things Jay said to me uh, in the lead up to our recording uh, via text was, this is one of the movies that makes him kind of feel bad that Jeffrey Jones is a creep in real life because it kind of ruins a little bit of the enjoyment of this movie and it kind of ruins a little bit of the enjoyment of just Jeffrey Jones as a performer. But man, this movie is just loaded down with interesting actors making interesting choices pretty much at every turn. Um, even I think Keanu gets in on the fun a little bit. He makes a, a couple of fun choices, but between you know Pacino still throwing the fastball and Charlize Theron uh, on her way to her breakout roles, and you've got Craig T. Nelson playing against type and Jeffrey Jones playing type. 
it's it's just some really good stuff, and it's this movie's just a blast. So let me tell y'all what this movie is for me. This movie is Hotel California, and I love that song, and I love the Eagles. Fuck you, Big Lebowski. I love that 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 band, and I love that song. All right, but there's part of that song where I'm like, what "The fuck are you talking about, Don?" <laughs> like we're just we're kind of wandering, and there's weird shit happening and then the maestros step up and felder and walsh blow that thing through the roof and into the stratosphere and that solo in hotel california is the end of this movie the way mike you described pacino and that whole the whole end and the fact that it leaves me with this huge question like how did that happen all this movie to me is like the visual representation of hotel california and it's not the most perfect rock song ever. And it's got some campy shit going on. And there's definitely some choices being made and some language being used that I don't know if that's the way we would go. But in the end, the culmination of it is this maestro perfection of a vision. And it's, it's run by a bunch of lunatics who've got one person kind of keeping it all, all together. So Taylor Hackford is Don Felder in this metaphor. All right. So this person just kind of keeping this together. Cause Walsh will tell you, Hotel California is not it unless Felder's running them courts. And, and that's the truth. And that's what this movie is to me. It, it is a magnum opus of fun. It's fun. And I'm with you. I could pick apart stuff in it. I can go like, eh, that was, is that real? I don't care. I just want to see Delroy Lindo doing some voodoo shit. I want to see some weird backwater law and order stuff going on. I got some fundamentalist religion going on to the side. I got some weirdo basic instinct on crack going on with the omen and rosemary's baby all in a big old blender and it just makes this humongous red margarita that i know i'm gonna have a headache from and i don't care like i will run the extra miles because it's worth it like this this movie is always a fun to be a part of and so i'm, I'm tipping the scales over i probably did it earlier or whatever this is extra large to me y'all i don't care i love this the way mike loves firebirds like i do not i have no shame about how much i love this movie and that it is it is just one of those things that again i can never not watch and then not have conversations with people about it and i can't believe it's taken us 12 years of film strip to finally get here maybe it took me finally to get the right group of people together to do it but uh, but no i th this was it, it's again just such a fun thing to do and it's really fun to watch with people it's fun to talk about with people i think it holds up it's 25 years old y'all and i mean and like keanu reeves Gee, is a totally have, different person got to stop I'm, saying that Gee, i know I, right i, I remember <laughs> seeing this opening night you have got to stop fucking <laughs> saying that man <laughs> we all remember when it came out yeah. even if me, i didn't see it <laughs> me too but but the fact that it still works like it's still just as a culmination works is is why I give it such a high rating and, and put it on the same parlance as other things I've given extra large popcorn to through the years. But, you know, I believe very much in in the as I've gotten older in life, like you like what you like and stop apologizing for it. Just enjoy stuff and and have fun with it. So is it perfect? Eh, no, I would I would never tell you it's one of the most perfect films ever made. But it is. I mean, it's got a, it's got a sequence in it that may be just about some of the best you know, perfection you've ever seen in an overly dramatic movie. And again, it's like Hotel California to me. So extra large popcorn for me. Uh, in this one this has been an absolute blast talking with it about about this movie with with all of you carmelita again thanks for joining us on film strip tell folks how they can follow you on the internet all the cool stuff you got going on yeah so 
thank you all again for letting me be a part of this because, yeah, this was a blast. I had so much fun. Folks can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd, same handle for both, at Carmelita Says. And Mike, once again, film strip all star at this point, man. Like we, we thank you so much for for coming back and being a part of it. And also, honestly, thank you for the community you built with Action for Everyone and all the other cool stuff you've got going on. But tell folks how they can follow you and keep up with all your good work. Sure, and and thank you, thank you for that, and thank you for actually getting Carmelita on because I have long said uh, that she is uh, she is an instant podcast boost. Uh, it might be the most perfect podcast guest in the world. So, um, oh, thanks, Fred. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. You can uh, find Action for Everyone on Twitter at A4E Podcast. That's the letter A, the number four, the letter E Podcast. And you can find it anywhere uh, podcasts can be found. So that's where I'm at. And folks, of course, you can follow this show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. There you'll find announcements about upcoming shows, a link to our letterbox page, which has our entire list of reviews, 330 plus deep in there. There's something for everyone uh, in, in our lexicon. Go to filmstrippodcast.com. You'll link to our anchor.fm distribution site. You'll find your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you find us. Leave us a positive review. Share the show on your social medias as well, because it helps other people find the show. For Carl Carmelita, Mike, Lindsay, and Ron. I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Film Street. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.